Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. It says, and they led Jesus away to the high priest and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree Then son rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent. And answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. We now come to the portion of scripture where the servant is on trial. We know from the New Testament record that there were really six different inquiries or inquisitions or what we might even call trials. In Mark's gospel, the ecclesiastical trial begins at verse 53 and then goes all the way till the end of the chapter and then beginning in chapter 15 Verse one, Mark records the trial before the high priest in verse 53, the midnight meeting of the Sanhedrin in verses 55 and 56. And then he will the the Sanhedrin will reconvene in chapter 15, verse one. Now, again, the six trials very quickly. Number one, the first is the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. You'll remember Jesus is taken. He is seized. The disciples scatter. This took place on the evening of the Passover. In the night, Jesus will be taken to Annas, the high priest, and then to Caiaphas. And some people ask, well, I don't get it. It it says that Annas is the high priest and then Caiaphas is the high priest. Which one is the high priest? The right answer, Caiaphas is the current high priest. Annas was the preceding high priest. Why? Because in that culture and society, when you became the high priest, you retained the title forever. In our culture and society, if you're elected president of the United States, you retain the title forever. Mr. Carter is referred to as President Carter. Both Bushes as President Bush. 
Clinton is President Clinton. And so that's why you have one being called and the other. And number two, the servant Jesus is then brought to what seems like a limited group or at least a smaller group, maybe a hastily drawn group here. And in Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. And then number three, Jesus is brought before the full body of the Sanhedrin, a kind of Supreme Court at daybreak in Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. And then number four, Jesus is brought before Pilate, who is the Roman procurator or governor. When Pilate discovers that Jesus is from the Galilee, he rules jurisdictionally. He says, Jesus is from the Galilee. Send him to Herod Antipas, who happens to be in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem pass for the Jewish Passover. Then number five, Jesus is brought before Herod. This is the Herod Antipas who kills John the Baptist. Luke's gospel records the events in chapter 23, verses 8 through 11. The New Living Bible gives a simple but vivid picture. In Luke 23, it says, Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus, for he had heard a lot about him and had been hoping to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but there was no reply. Meanwhile, the chief priests and the other religious leaders stood there shouting out accusations. Now Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus and putting a kingly robe on him. They sent him back to Pilate that day. Herod and Pilate enemies before became fast friends, unquote. And then number six, Jesus is returned to Pilate. And then Pilate makes a feeble, half-hearted attempt to release Jesus. In Luke's gospel, Pilate even renders a verdict of not guilty. In Luke chapter 24, verse 14, it says, Having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him, unquote. Can you imagine a trial and a verdict of not guilty? And then you're still executed. It's the height of injustice. And so in our text, it's number two of the six that I just explained to you. The conversation with Annas has already taken place. The convening of the Sanhedrin is about to take place in the morning in chapter 15, verse 1. So our text is the midnight trial. But in it, in order to understand what you're reading, I want to make this very simple. There are two witnesses. There are two trials. There are two judges. Now, in the text, one of the witnesses is outside. It's Peter. He knows the truth. But for reasons that we're soon going to discover, he refuses to come forward with the truth. Peter will deny Jesus. He will follow at a distance. The others are inside. They are false witnesses. The best money can buy. There are really two trials. One is taking place on the earth. The other is taking place in heaven. 
where soon Jesus, who is both king and Lord, will try all of humanity. Where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty and the power. Then there are two judges, one on earth, Caiaphas, asking the right question, but he's unwilling to accept the answer. The other in heaven, the eternal judge, dispensing justice with absolute fairness. So again, we begin with the two witnesses. Look at verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest and with him were assembled All the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Now again, conservative Bible scholars state this is the trial before Caiaphas. In verse 54 it says, But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants, and he warmed himself at the fire. Remember, they have scattered in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter begins to follow Jesus From a distance, or at least what he considers to be a safe distance. Now, someone has outlined his downfall this way. Number one, he first fought. That's misdirected enthusiasm. He then fled, cowardly withdrawal. He then followed, half-heartedly, by night. He makes his way in. He tries to remain small. He wants to see what's going on. He sits with the servants and he warms himself at the fire in the presence and the company of Christ's enemies. Now would have been the perfect time for Peter to offer his testimony concerning the ministry of Jesus. Remember, there's a trial going on on the inside Filled with false witnesses, the high priest is trying to get witnesses to testify against Jesus. Can you imagine if Peter had offered to testify on behalf of Jesus? He says, I was there from the beginning. He called me on the seashore. I saw him open blind eyes and deaf ears. Remember who he is. He's the son of David. Remember what he's done. Remember the things that he said and the things that he's done. He could have testified that I saw him on a mountain With Elijah and Moses, I heard a voice from heaven testifying that this is the Son of God. The denial doesn't come all at once. Backsliding rarely takes place all at once. Typically, people will find themselves trusting themselves Using their own resources, when we stop reading our Bible, when we have an inconsistent time of devotion, instead of sharing Jesus with the world, we find ourselves sharing in the world. And so Peter warms himself by the enemy's fire. Is that what you're doing this morning? You're at church. But do you find yourself warming yourself at a different fire? Are you finding warmth and comfort and companionship in the things of this world? Beware. I need to remind you of something. Compromise is the beginning. And when compromise is the beginning, then denial typically doesn't follow far behind. Our culture is fascinated by trials. 
And I suspect in a room this large and with this many people, we have people who have been on trial. We have people who have been called for jury duty. Have you ever been called for jury duty? Have you ever had to give testimony or been called as a witness in a trial? And by the way, the more severe the accusation, the more severe the punishment. And that's why I think that we're so fascinated by trials, because we know it's the difference between incarceration and freedom. It's the difference between one kind of a life or another kind of a life. In my own lifetime, I I saw, at least in part on TV, the trial of the Watergate conspirators and Chuck Colson. Some of you followed the O.J. trial. Some of you followed other kinds of trials. Throughout history, we've had Socrates in Athens, Eichmann at Nuremberg, Luther before the Catholic Inquisition. What do they all have in common? They become points in time and space that define a person's life and future. Trials charge our emotions and challenge our beliefs. Walter Chandler, an attorney and author, wrote a book entitled The Trial of Jesus from a Lawyer's Standpoint. He he writes, quote, these other trials, one and all, were tame and commonplace compared with the trial and crucifixion of the Galilean peasant, Jesus of Nazareth. Those were earthly trials on earthly issues before earthly courts. The trial of the Nazarene was before the high tribunals, both of heaven And earth. And it's true. Because his trial would involve everyone who has ever lived. In verse 55, it says, now the chief priest and the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Remember, in that culture and society, it is the witness who brings forth the accusation. And remember what I've already told you, that in order to be a witness, you have to have a knowledge of the facts. You have to have a reputation for honesty. You have to be willing to tell the truth. And the text isn't explicit, but verse 55 seems to begin the account of the Midnight meeting, the Sanhedrin contained 70 leaders who were presided over by the high priest. In the Jewish Sanhedrin, there were typically 23 priests, there were 23 scribes, there were 23 elders. Now, I want you to think about this priests, scribes, But when you read the word scribe, don't think of a court reporter. Don't think simply of a person who's taking down notes. A scribe and that culture and that society were lawyers who were completely gifted in understanding and applying the law. There were two officers of the court. One of them was the high priest. In order to sit on the Sanhedrin, a person had to be a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's an idiomatic expression. That means Jewish on both sides of the family. You had to also be learned in the law. That means you had to have passed the ancient version of the bar. You had to be completely familiar with the law of Moses and the Mishnah, which was the oral law and the commentary on the law. 
You had to be a linguist. That means you had to be able to speak and understand several different languages. Why? Because you had to be the person who heard the testimony in the language and be able to draw conclusions based on it. So, in order to be on the Sanhedrin, you had to be just, you had to be humble, you had to be fair-minded, you had to be, have not to have known to have received any bribes, that means that you were without fault or blemish. If a person was a relative, or if a person had something to gain by a guilty verdict, you were automatically disqualified. So on this night, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, elders. They completely disregard the rule of law. You see, Jesus is not going to get a fair trial. This is one of the differences between the trial of Jesus and your trial. And by the way, each and every one of us, I guarantee you, every person who's hearing my voice at this time will stand before Jesus. Jesus will be your Savior. Or He will be your judge. But make no mistake about it. Absolutely and positively, you will stand before Jesus. As a matter of fact, Just quickly, number one, it was forbidden to meet at night or during the Jewish feast. Number two, it was forbidden to bribe witnesses to commit perjury. Number three, it was forbidden to render a capital judgment or judgment of death until at least one night had passed. And number four, it was forbidden to render a judgment in an assembly other than the hall of hewn stone, which was in the temple area. In other words, like our own Supreme Court, there is no place that the Supreme Court can render a verdict except in the hollowed halls of the Supreme Court where hangs the Ten Commandments. Otherwise, the judgment wasn't binding. One Bible teacher writes, In their eagerness to eliminate Jesus, the Jewish authorities did not hesitate to stoop to breaking their own law. And so the trial of Jesus forces everyone to examine the charges that are made against him. I want you to imagine just for a moment. I want you to think about what you're reading. God is under arrest. And he is charged with claiming to be the Messiah of Israel and the son of the living God. And every man and every woman and every child must consider the claims and issue a verdict. And all have to examine the evidence and all have to render a verdict. All have to find Jesus innocent or guilty. Guilty of blasphemy. Guilty of delusion, guilty of lying, guilty of holding himself out as the savior of mankind, a pretender who raised the hopes of desperate followers followers only to delude them into following him in his hopeless fantasy. Or find him innocent. 
based on the fact that he opened blind eyes, deaf ears. He said the most incredible things that have ever been said. He did the most wonderful things that have ever been done. That he was spotless and blameless and guiltless. And that he sentenced to death for you. He is guilty of holding himself out as the savior of all mankind. The only thing that you can't do, the one thing that you must not do, is to ignore the charges or to refuse to render a verdict by conveniently stating that it's none of my business, it's none of my concern, and I don't care of Jesus, I don't care about his trial, and I don't care about the accusations made for or against him, and I don't care about the claims of Christ, because the truth is that each and every one of you is going to be evaluated based on what you did with the information of Jesus, and you will enter into a verdict. And anything less than the full acknowledgement of his right and his authority over you is going to result in a new trial, one that will take place in heaven. Now, you have to understand something. In the Jewish legal system, it's very different from ours on at least a a couple of ways. In the Jewish legal system and the Jewish courts, the witness played the dominant role. The witness was also the accuser. Therefore, their testimony had to match exactly. And the penalty for a false testimony was the penalty that was brought against the accused. So if you accuse the person of blasphemy, and they aren't guilty, then you have to experience the verdict. If if you accuse someone of murder, if you accuse someone of theft, if you accuse someone of some crime, whatever the judgment of that crime, you would be liable for it. So if you accuse a person of stealing your mule, and the judgment in part is going to be that you have to replace that mule with two mules and you bring an unjust accusation, then the unjust accuser has to pay the penalty. In this case, the Sanhedrin is seeking the death penalty. If the person is caught lying, if the person is caught committing perjury, they can be put to death. And remember, you had to be a qualified witness. You had to have a knowledge of the facts. You had to have a reputation for honesty. You had to be willing to tell the truth. And in cases of capital punishment, testimony from women were disallowed in that legal system. Remember that the accuser also had to initiate the judgment. And that means the accuser, if the person was found guilty and the capital punishment is by stoning, then the accuser is the one who has to pick up the the stone and smash it against the victim's head. A child could not testify. A person who is mentally incompetent could not testify. A person who is morally unfit could not testify. And the witnesses had to be in full agreement in each and every detail. Now, understanding that, read verse 56. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimonies did not agree. The determined leaders marched 
a group of false witnesses, but they were unable to produce a united testimony. Envision it. Witness number one comes in. Witness number two. Number three. Number four. It doesn't match. It doesn't match. It doesn't match. The religious leaders are determined to keep hearing testimony until someone says exactly what they want to hear. One expert on the Jewish law wrote, quote, Even where there appeared a legal number of duly qualified witnesses, the testimony was insufficient to convict unless they agreed not only with regard to the prisoner's offense, but also with regard to the mode of committing it. Rabbinic law does not subject a person to capital or even corporal punishment unless all the witnesses charge him with one and the same criminal act. Their statements fully agreeing on the main circumstances, declaring that they saw one another while seeing him engaged in the crime. Do you understand the standard of guilt? Not only did you have to have two people saying exactly the same thing, but they also had to testify that I saw him there and he saw me there. Isn't that amazing? As a matter of fact, There must be two or more to convict. Numbers 3530. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one person is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty, unquote. And so in verse 57, it says, then some rose up and they bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands, verse 59. But not even then did their testimony agree. It's amazing what you hear in court. And it's amazing what people will testify to. And it doesn't matter how outlandish that it is. I read some interesting interactions posted from court reporters. Listen to this. Attorney. What was the first thing your husband said to you that morning? Witness, he said, where am I, Kathy? Attorney, and that upset you. Witness, my name is Susan. Another one, attorney. Now, doctor, isn't it true when a person dies in his sleep, he doesn't know about it until the next morning? Witness. Did you actually pass the bar exam? (laughs) Attorney. How was your first marriage terminated? Witness. By death. Attorney. And by whose death was it terminated? Witness. Take a guess. (laughs) And of course, my favorite. Attorney. Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Witness. No. Attorney, did you check for blood pressure? Witness, no. Attorney, did you check for breathing? Witness, no. Attorney, so then it is possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? Witness, no. Attorney, how can you be so sure, doctor? Witness, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. Attorney. I see, but could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? Witness, yes, it's possible. And he could be right here, right now, practicing law. (laughs) 
Isn't it crazy? What Jesus actually said is found in John chapter 2, verse 19, in response to the Jews who said, What sign will you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Two trials. One on earth. One in heaven. One just. The other unjust. Look at verse 60. It says, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 61. But he kept silent and said nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? At first, Jesus is silent. But when the high priest asked Jesus under oath, Matthew 26, 63, whether or not Jesus is in fact the Jewish Messiah promised and prophesied in the scripture, the Lord obeys in accordance with Leviticus chapter five, verse one. In Leviticus chapter five, verse one, it says, if a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and he is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. And Jesus is obligated to tell the truth. And he will tell the truth about himself. Let me ask you a question. Do you think if he's willing to tell the truth about himself that will there come a time when he's willing to tell the truth about you? You need to understand something. Jesus is obligated to tell the truth. About the Father, about Himself, and about you, and about me. And in verse 62, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Think about this. What does Jesus mean by his answer? What is Jesus telling them? The Lord responds to the high priest in a clear and an unmistakable statement. You've asked me if I'm the Christ and I am the high priest. And listen to what he says. The high priest will see Jesus, the son of man, sitting at the right hand of power, coming back to earth with the clouds of heaven. What does that mean? It meant in part that the high priest would literally see Jesus openly manifested as God. The Jesus that stands before the high priest is veiled in human flesh. He looks like an ordinary human. He looks like an ordinary Jew. He looks like an ordinary Galilean. 
But when Jesus comes back, it will be in power and splendor and great glory. The veil will be lifted. His identity will be unmistakable to all. And you have to understand when he says in verse 62, I am and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power. He is making a direct reference to Psalm 110 verse 1 where it says the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool. Do you understand the quote that he's given? He's basically saying, I am on trial and I am accused. But one day you'll be on trial. And you'll be accused. There's going to be a new trial where they're the accused. The next reference is Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Do you know what that is? It's a blatant statement of his identity. Both are clearly messianic. I need you to understand what you're reading. Jesus is giving them one last chance. Jesus is giving them a warning. The one day the roles are going to be reversed. The answer of Jesus is a confession of his identity and a warning of the future. Every unbeliever. Every make believer. Every doubter. Every critic will one day see Jesus. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. Paul writes and he says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the courtroom, Jesus proves to be utterly reliable. In the courtyard, Peter proves to be utterly Unreliable. In verse 63, look what it says. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? Now, think about what's happening. The high priest completely, completely, completely understands Christ's claims. The priest tears his garment in protest and righteous indignation over what he thinks is the most outrageous and audacious claim. Remember, Jesus is claiming to be God's Messiah, and it is utter blasphemy. Or it's the truth. It is utter blasphemy. Or it is the truth. But you know, one of the affirmative defenses is that if it's true, it's true. Can you imagine if Peter came in? Well, you know, his mom is a direct descendant of David uh, and Judah. Um, He was born in Bethlehem. All of the messianic credentials seem to belong to him. Who else did what he did? Who else opened blind eyes and deaf ears? Who else cleansed the leper and raised the dead? Who else calmed the storms? Who else did what Jesus did? And the one best Jew prepared to recognize and authenticate the claims of the Messiah produces the loudest condemnation. 
By the way, several rules that govern trial were violated by the accusers of Jesus. Number one, first, the arrest of Jesus took place at night. It was established and inflexible. Capital cases could never be tried at night. According to the Mishnah, let a capital offense be tried during the day, but suspended at night. That wasn't done. Number two, the arrest was achieved through the agency of a traitor. The laws that bear on the role of Judas is found in Leviticus 19.16. It says, you shall not go up and down as a talebearer among your people. Neither shall you stand against the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. That means the accuser had to have been good character. They couldn't bear witness against a close companion, a friend or a relative. The person who turned him in just minutes earlier was kissing him repeatedly on the cheek and calling him master and master. Number three, the high priest was forbidden, forbidden to speak during an inquiry. The high priest's opinion was deemed so valuable that his was always the last to vote. As a matter of fact, in a vote, when they went around the table, they were in a semicircle so each could see the other. In deep frustration, the high priest breaks this rule. The false witness couldn't even bring a proper accusation. The high priest couldn't lawfully elicit a confession from a prisoner. Even then, the person had the right to refuse to incriminate themselves. When the high priest got up in verse 60, he assumes the role of the accuser. The high priest breaks a fundamental rule. He can't be the accuser and the judge at the same time. The Mishnah says, be not a sole judge, for there is no judge but one. And the accused was never compelled to testify. Jesus was entirely within his rights and the law to remain silent. So what was Jesus saying by his silence? He was saying by his silence, if you are going to try me, then do it right. Do it according to the rule of law. I want you to think about it for just a moment. There's no indictment and there's no charge. That too is illegal. Think about that for just a moment. How do you have a trial without a charge? In Matthew's gospel, the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God, Matthew 26, 63. Tell us whether or not you're the Christ, the son of God. By the way, the question was illegal and brilliant. Why? Because it's the right question. For if he had said, do you claim to be the Messiah? All the charges would have to be dropped. Do you want to know why? Because it's not a crime to claim to be the Messiah. If he said, do you claim to be the son of God? The charges would have to be dropped. Why? Because all Jews believed that they were sons of God. In a unique and protected sense. That they had a special relationship as the sons of Abraham to the true and living God. And so here the high priest is demanding that Jesus reveal whether or not he's the Messiah, the Holy One, the unique one, the prophesied one, the son of the blessed. That's the right question. But the priest is unprepared for the answer. It is the right question for you to ask. Jesus, who are you? What are you? 
People are willing to ask the right questions, but they're unprepared for the answer that God gives in his word. The Bible says that we're sinners in need of a savior, that we stand condemned before a holy and a a righteous and a just God. And even though there are two witnesses and there are two trials and there are going to be two judges, there's also two verdicts. One that will be rendered here or there. You will ask for mercy here. Or you will ask for justice. There. And I guarantee you that if you ask for justice in heaven, you will get it. And look what it says in verse 64. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. The reply brings both relief and a faked outrage. They want to put him to death. By the way, blasphemy is the charge of saying something so offensive that it wounds the identity, that it damages the character of God. Do you understand what Jesus is accused of here? He's accused of offending himself. In verse 65, it says, then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palm of their hands. I want you to think about what you're reading. The members of the court begin to spit on him. Imagine. The judge comes and spits in your face. The jury comes and spits in your face. The people from the gallery come and they spit in your face. Imagine the bailiff comes and he puts a blindfold on you and he starts to beat you with the billy club. And then your own attorney comes and kicks you in the shins. It's crazy. Imagine a court where judge, jury, prosecutor, everyone turns against you. And I want you, again, to think about the context. Jesus has agreed to the betrayal. Jesus has agreed to be taken. Jesus allows himself to be tried under these circumstances. And I need you to understand something. Jesus isn't going to be put to death in a lawless society, but a civilized society. Jesus is going to be sentenced in a legal system that operates under the rules of order that was fair and generous and enlightened. And so if you're wondering what kind of a trial that you'll receive in heaven... You will have a judge who will have access to every moment of every day of your life. He will have access to everything that you said or didn't say. Of everything that you did or refused to do. And he will render a verdict. Based on his perfect holiness. And righteousness. And justice. Because you see, Jesus is also a witness. He's a witness of God's love and God's patience and God's grace. And unlike the false witness, the testimony of Jesus is true. Two trials, two witnesses, two judges. 
to please. Mercy. Now. Justice. Later. Which will it be for you? Because you see, the truth is, right now you're the jury. But later you're going to be the judged. As the jury, you get to render a verdict. Because if in your heart Jesus is found guilty of being the loving Lord who stood in your place and received your punishment and embraced the consequences for your sin, then you receive mercy. But if your judgment is, I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to deal with it, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Then you will stand before Jesus the judge. And Jesus will allow only one plea. To be entered. Justice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord what an amazing thing. That someone so pure, so holy, so righteous, so innocent could be involved in a system that was so utterly unjust and so utterly corrupt. And Lord, what a tragedy that the only people who came forward were to testify falsely when the one true witness stood warming himself and the campfire of the enemy. When he could have burst in and insisted that the truth be told. About Jesus. About his life. About his love. About his mission. About his words. About his invitation. I'm sure that the words were ringing in Peter's ears. You are the Christ. The son of the living God, Lord, what will our testimony be to a watching world who wants to know the truth about Jesus? Lord, we pray that you would make all of us men and women who know the facts about Jesus. Lord, we pray that we could cultivate a reputation for honesty and that when asked, we would have the courage To tell the truth. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.